Welcome to Practical Christian Living. I think that when Jesus said things, they always wondered, is he talking literally? Is he talking about something else? And I think when Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise again, they were like, what does all this mean? They just didn't take it in a plain sense. Jesus' last night with the disciples was so very special for many reasons. He taught them much on this one evening, the first of which was how to be a servant. But much of what Jesus spoke to them this last night with them in the upper room, they did not understand. Today on Practical Christian Living, we're in our series, Jesus Appointments, as we look at this very special and significant final appointment that Jesus had with those closest to him. Here's Robert Furrow with John chapter 13, 1 through 17. We approach your word with a desire to know what you want from us. We want to know what we can learn from this, what it means to us that we might be able to give you our lives wholeheartedly. We love you. We want to do what you want us to do. We want to get a hold of strongholds in our lives. We want to give you purity and righteousness. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each of us today as we surrender our hearts to you in a new, fresh way. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In John 13, verses 1 through 17, we're going to look at why Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We find here on the night that he was arrested that he gathered together with his disciples in the upper room, and we know that he gave them the ritual of communion that you and I take over and over again. For us, it's once it will be next Wednesday night that we'll take communion together, but a lot more happened there as well. We know that as soon as dinner was done, before, and we're going to read this in a moment, before he reveals the one who will betray him, before he talks about Peter denying him, he washes the disciples' feet. And this is the beginning of what is called the upper room discourse. Jesus tells them a lot about the Holy Spirit that will be given to them, about them coming, to, that he's leaving, but they're going to be able to come and see him. He talks to them about the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a great discourse that covers several chapters, but before he ever does any of that, the dinner being done, he gets up, he takes out his outer robe off, and he ties a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And this is one of those iconic pictures in the Scriptures, kind of like Palm Sunday. That's just an iconic picture of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords on a donkey entering into Jerusalem. Well, here, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords washing the disciples' feet. It's such a powerful picture. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of John chapter 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, so he knew that he was going to leave, he loved his own who were in the world and loved them to the end. Jesus had predicted his death on several occasions, and the disciples didn't understand him. And I think that that's revealed later on in the upper room discourse because Jesus says to them, I'm going to speak to you plainly now. And then he speaks to them plainly and they go, now we know you're speaking plainly and not in parables. I think that when Jesus said things, they always wondered, is he talking literally? Is he talking about something else? 
And I think when Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise again, they were like, what does all this mean? They just didn't take it in a plain sense. Peter had even tried to rebuke him when Jesus told him that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And the disciples remembered and talked about it afterwards. Hindsight is 2020. So after he was risen from the dead, all of a sudden it says, we remember that Jesus said these things. Jesus assured here in this first verse that he loved the disciples. Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We know that Jesus loved the 12, even he didn't isolate out Judas, but he loved them. And we know that Jesus has a great love for us. In 1 John 4, 19, it says we love him because he first loved us. And in John 15, 13, it says no greater love, no greater love has anyone than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus loves us even as he loved them. In verse 2, it says, and supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we know that this was put in his heart. In fact, he had made plans already when they met for the upper room. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. At this point, we need to understand a couple of things. And I think maybe we do. And that is that the disciples had argued for a while about which one of them were going to be the greatest, which is always a funny thing to me because Jesus is so humble. But these guys, Peter, James and John, seem to have some kind of a competition I think we could throw Judas in there. We might be able to throw Matthew in there. Being a tax collector, being an educated guy, we could probably throw a few of the others in there who wanted to be great. And they saw themselves in on the bottom floor of the kingdom of God. And they weren't happy just being one of the 12. They wanted to know who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. In Luke 9, 46, they talked about it as they walked along the road. Jesus overheard them and he sat down with them and said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you have to be least in the kingdom. In Luke 22, 34, he knew again what they were talking about. And so it says, and so Jesus took a child and sat a child in front of them and said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have got to become like this child. In Mark 9, 34, he asked them, what were you talking about while you were walking down the road? And it says, they said to him, we don't want to say because they were talking about who was going to be the greatest. It's like when you're asked a question about something, I, I use that as a joke. Somebody will ask me about something, I go, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to say. Just like the disciples, we don't want to tell you. And of course, in Matthew 20, verse 29, James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, will you do me a favor? And Jesus says, what do you want? That you would put my sons, one on your right and one on your left hand. And so they even got the moms involved. And the Bible says that the other disciples disdained them for it. And Jesus got everybody together and said, the kings of this world rule over people, but not so in the kingdom of God, that if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be a servant of all. And I love that Jesus didn't rebuke them for their desire to be great. We do know that the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 3, 
that we are to do nothing for selfish ambition. But we are not to just, I want to be great. I want to do great things, just selfish ambition. We have to humble ourselves and say, I want to be used by God for his glory, that he would be lifted up. But I love that Jesus didn't rebuke them for their ambition. He just redirected it. Maybe God would do the same for us. You want to be great? You want God to do great things in your life? You want to be used by God in a great way? Then learn to be a servant. Learn to take that servant role. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing when, hey, they've been walking through the streets of Jerusalem. They're sitting down for a meal. The custom was to have someone there who would wash their feet, a servant or the person who called it together. And I guess Jesus had been the one who called it together. None of them took the role of a servant. So he gets up and he begins to wash their feet. Now it becomes even more interesting when he approaches Peter. Verse six, then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? <laughs> Which sounds very much like Peter. Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Now there's something here for us. And that is that we don't always know what God's doing. Sometimes God gives us direction in scripture. He tells us to do something and we don't know why. So we might, we might be hesitant to do what he said because we don't understand it. But if we really trust him and we really believe him, then we'll know later on. And the important part for us is just being obedient. Peter says in verse eight, you shall never wash my feet, which is so much like Peter. It reminds me of after the resurrection, Peter having a vision of this table being lowered down from heaven with all kinds of kosher food on it. And God telling him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, not so. I won't do it. Three times he said that. This was to show him that the Gentiles were going to be coming into, uh, in, that the Gentiles were going to be welcomed into the family of God and that it was no longer, that the law was no longer what we live by. Also, when Jesus had talked about being killed, laying his own life down, it was Peter that took him aside and rebuked him. Reminds me of when, in the early days when Peter was fishing all night and Jesus said, let down your net for a catch. And Peter said, I've been fishing all night, Lord. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. And then after he caught so many fish that it was beginning to tear the net and sink the boat, he fell down in front of Jesus and said, leave me, Lord, I'm a sinner. He was the guy always talking back to Jesus. You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. He didn't say, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. But if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. So this is an analogy now, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So speaking of Judas, right? So I think when it comes to washing Peter's feet, there are four things that we can learn from that. Number one, if you are not washed by Jesus, you can have no part in him. You have to be born again. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In 1 John 1.7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another 
We're walking with him because he's in the light and we have fellowship with Jesus. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses his and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that you know God and the son whom he sent. So it's a relationship with God. So we enter into a relationship with him. We interact with him and our sins are forgiven. God had promised in the book of Ezekiel in, 25, in 36, 25, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will take away your heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In Hebrews 10, 16 through 18, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. So that if you are here tonight and you have never entered into a relationship with him, you have never asked him to forgive you of your sins, then you can confess that today and you can be forgiven and you can be made totally pure and clean. Now, when that happens, our sinful nature isn't taken away and our struggle with sin doesn't leave us. I wish it did. Is there anybody else here that feels that way? Probably all of us, right? Paul said in Romans chapter 7, the very things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. And we end up saying, amen, I understand. Galatians tells us that there's a struggle, the spirit struggling against the flesh and the flesh struggling against the spirit. And we know that. And because we still have a sin nature, then we do struggle with sin, which brings us to the second thing we learn from Jesus washing Peter's feet. We need to keep things right between us and God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Doesn't mean we keep his commandments all the time. It certainly means we want to. And it certainly means by a matter of practice, we do. You can't say I love Jesus and just be living a massively sinful lifestyle. John said, if you say you love him, but you don't keep his commandments, then you're lying. So it's always a good check. If you are not living a godly lifestyle at all and your practice in life is to be sin, is to sin, then you can be pretty sure that you have to get things right between you and God. But it says in 1 John 1, 8, it says that if there's someone who says that they have no sin, then, the, then they deceive themselves and the truth isn't in them. I've known people who've told me that they don't sin anymore. I've known individuals who have told me, I've walked with Christ, I'm walking so close with Jesus that I don't sin anymore. I thought they were sinning the very moment they told me that. They're lying. I, I think that we can know that because the same struggles that you have are the same struggles that I have. The Bible says that we have everything in common. There may be different levels, there may be different temptations, there may be different things that we struggle with, but we have struggles just like anyone else. You deceive yourself and the truth isn't in you. I heard a preacher say one time in the holiness movement, I haven't sinned for 12 years. And I knew he was lying at that moment as well. Except for right now, when your lips are moving and you're saying such a thing. I think he also knew that he was lying. So we're walking down the road, we're cleansed, we've, we've taken our shower, we've taken our bath, we're walking down the road in our open-toed sandals and our feet get dirty. 
The analogy is that as we move through this world, we sin. We fall back to a selfish desire, a selfish nature. We give in to some temptation on some level, and now we have to make it right. Now we have to come back to him. We want to keep short accounts. David kept short accounts most of his life. But after his sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah, he looked like the hero because he brought her into his harem. Later on, when his sin was exposed, he said in Psalm 51, when I kept silent, my bones grew old within me. When we keep things right with God, well, Peter said it in Acts chapter 3. He said, repent. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. When you and I have things right with God, there's a refreshment that comes from Him. And when we have unconfessed, unrepented sin in our lives, our feet are dirty and we just keep them dirty. We harbor up sin in our lives. Then there's a, there's a distance between us and God. I'm not saying that you're not saved. If you don't repent from it at all, and if you don't want to do what God wants you to do, then I think that you need to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. But just because you struggle doesn't mean you're saved, not saved because we all do. But we want to make sure that we keep short accounts with God, that we make things right and keep them right. I haven't wore, I haven't had a pair of white tennis shoes in who knows how long, 20 years probably. But I used to, that's all I used to wear. I used to preach either in cowboy boots or tennis shoes. Believe it or not, I couldn't keep tennis shoes clean for whatever reason. I'm the guy that just will scuff a brand new pair of shoes right out of the shoes. We had a guy on staff here that had the whitest tennis shoes ever. I don't know how we kept from scuffing them up. I don't know how they stayed so clean. But I do know that when I cleaned my tennis shoes, I was really careful how I moved because I didn't want them to get dirty. They did anyway. I think that's kind of like we are. We get things right with God and we want to keep them clean. If we don't confess, if we don't make things right, then it's really easy to move from sin to sin to sin. So the third thing that we learn from Jesus washing Peter's feet is that Jesus is faithful to forgive us. He's faithful to wash our feet. He's promised that. In 1 John 1, 9, we have one of the greatest promises in all of the pages of Scripture. It says, if we confess our sin, and the word confess means literally just to tell him that you have sinned, that you sit down and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've sinned. And whatever else you may want to express at that point, I can tell you that my prayers are like, Lord, I'm sorry that I've sinned. I can't believe that I've done this. I don't want to do this anymore. Help me. Help the hidden faults. Help me to understand why I'm doing it. Help the things that I don't even know that are having dominion over my life that might lead to these other things that I might really be able to walk with you. But if we confess our sins, he says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He's faithful to do it. I've heard people say, I can't confess my sins to God. God won't forgive me. Not again. He's faithful to forgive you. He will do it. And he's just in doing it because of his death of the son upon the cross. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And the rest of that verse says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, when our sin is forgiven, then we become right with God again. 
Because remember, righteousness is being in a right relationship with God and treating people around us right. So he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to lead us in the way of all righteousness, that we can be right between us and God, where we can go right to him again. There's nothing that keeps us away from having that right relationship with him. Keeping those short accounts and confessing it to Jesus. And so near the end of this account, when he gets done washing Peter's feet, he says, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. The reason Jesus washed the disciples' feet was to give them an example. Not an example for foot-washing ceremonies. I've shared before that they're, for me, they're the worst. I understand that some of you guys may have had really powerful experiences in washing, foot-washing ceremonies. Years ago, I walked into the little church that I attended in Albuquerque. It was Chelwood Park Foursquare Church. And I walked in and the stage was set up differently. And it took me a couple minutes to realize. Two sets of chairs, towels, little, little bowls full of water. It's a foot washing ceremony. <laughs> I got out of there. I left just as soon as I could because I had been at them before. To me, they're always awkward. I think if we would have been around in the days of Jesus, it would not have been awkward because you wash people's feet all the time. People came over to your house and you washed them. And it wasn't a religious thing. So when I went to my very first foot washing ceremony, I'm a teenager. And they, for whatever reason, we get chosen to wash each other's feet. And this is, it's religious, right? So you don't just pick up their feet and scrub them, <laughs> right? I mean, you got to pick up their foot and you splash it. <laughs> you rub some soap on it. It's just weird. It's weird. And uh, it's weirder when they wash your foot. You're like, okay, go, go ahead. I don't think that the Jesus was giving us a foot washing ceremony. It's like I said, I've talked to people that have been upset that I, I tell my experiences and how I feel because they had a foot washing ceremony and they were blessed by it. I don't know that that's possible. No, I'm kidding. I, I understand that God does a lot of things in a lot of different ways. I just don't think that's what he was talking about. And it doesn't fit into our times. At a, one of our early pastors conferences, we do the Calvary Chapel Southwest and leader, uh, Pastors and Leaders Conference in March. One of, during one of the early conferences, we were having an afterglow where we were just singing and waiting on God and just waiting for God to move and see what God was going to do. And a guy came up to me, another pastor from here in town, and said to me, God told me to wash your feet. And I wanted to say, no, I didn't. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But I felt for whatever reason, just let this guy do it. So I take my shoes and socks off and he's got a bottle of water there and he washes my feet and I put my socks back on again. And I determined never again. The next time somebody says to me, God told me to wash your feet, I'm gonna go, nope, you weren't hearing from God at all. I shouldn't say that because God may do it, you know? You may test me on it. But it's obvious here that Jesus was taking the role of a servant. And that if we are going to do what Jesus did, then we are going to take the role of a servant with one another. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.